It's Wednesday night, and we are in a study on the Apostle Peter. I said this last week, but I'm going to remind you again. In the book of Acts, the story of Peter begins in Acts 2, but I included him in Acts 1. Acts 2 are the first 12 chapters of Acts. Talk about this man, Peter. Acts 1 through 12. It's about Peter. We're not going to sing these songs again. I'll raise them. All right. And then 13, Acts 13. All the way to the end of the book. Through chapter 28. A lot of times, this is about Paul. A lot of times I'll say, well, somebody say, where's that found? I say in Acts, the 29th chapter. And they don't know there's only 28 chapters in Acts. But we're talking about Peter. And probably he is one man that's got some of the highlights all through the New Testament. Peter is a very interesting man. He was a fisherman. Being a fisherman, he was a simple man. He was uneducated. Fisherman, he was raised in Galilee. He was a fisherman on the Sea of Galilee. If I hadn't made it clear before, I you should have it clear by now. If this is Israel here, right here, and if this is southern Israel or southern Judah right down here, which is comprised of Judah, the tribe of Judah, and Benjamin, Then up here in the northern Israel, up here is the Sea of Galilee, and that whole area up there is called Galilee. And he was from Galilee, and he was fishing on this Sea of Galilee. Galilee was considered a redneck area of Israel. Ignorant people, fishermen, shepherds, people that were unimportant. The men that ruled Israel other than the Romans over here in Rome, the men that ruled Israel in the temple, in the synagogue, was the Pharisees. And the Pharisees had twisted the word of God. I'm not going to go into that. But they had perverted it when they when they translated it over to the Babylonian synagogue where they organized the synagogue and translated it to Aramaic. So anything that Jesus was saying for the Pharisees was to correct them. Northern Israel was the ten northern tribes or the ten lost tribes of Israel. Only southern Judah received the four decrees to come back after they were after they were scattered all over the earth. And we're going to talk about their scattering. Four decrees. And Peter was he was a fisherman up here, he was considered a very crude man, and they had a different dialect, different dialect than they had down here in southern Judah of their koine, K-O-I-N-E. Koine is the word common. You get the word common. You get the word koinos. Koinos is the word over there in Hebrews, the 13th chapter, when the Bible is speaking about you're making the blood of Christ a common thing by your practices and by your belief. It's the word common. 
it's it we get the word communion from this and communion means to have all things common to divide everything equally we get the word k-o-i-n-o-n-i-a koinonia which is the word fellowship when you find the word fellowship it's usually that fellowship or partaker the bible says if anyone comes bringing either the doctrine do not bid them godspeed or don't have fellowship with them and don't take them into your household if you take them into your household and they're preaching a false doctrine you're partaker of their evil deeds so this word koine they had a common street language in every city-state. Whenever I say city-state, it's just like Tennessee. Nashville is the capital of Tennessee, and its laws go to the boundary of Tennessee, all over Tennessee. And we would be considered a city-state. So they had a different dialect of the common street language that they call the koine. Mr. Angus, Samuel Angus, called that a patois, P-A-T-O-I-S. Patois is a French word. I don't know why he called it by a French name, but I'm going to read something to you out of a book by Mr. Angus. This is a great book. It'll teach you all about the culture of the ancient world and how these people were involved in all kinds of imagination and this is about the koine. I had it open here a while ago. All right. Let me read this to you if I can find it again. Well, I had it open. Okay. All right. The koine. Let me read this to you. This is Samuel Angus, the mystery religions. Mystery religions were all located here in Greece and over here in Asia Minor and over here in what we call Italy and that was part of all of that it was Rome back then they called the whole thing Rome and the mystery religions you had to be you had to be initiated into the mystery religions let me read to you about the Corne uh, the Corne let me read the paragraph before this. In speaking of this cosmopolitan, it is impossible strictly to separate cause and effect. It may be said to have been promoted by Alexander's deliberate policy of intermixing diverse populations. His studied fair treatment of all peoples under his sovereignty, the commercial activity which was stimulated by opening up new fields of enterprise and by putting millions of hoarded Persian bullion into circulation by religious tolerance, and in a conspicuous manner by providing the first universal tongue for the whole civilized world in the Greek koine, K-O-I-N-E. He's the one that put this all over the world. He lived, Alexander the Great lived, around 332 is when he took over the empire the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire was, remember, Israel fell to the Assyrians. The Assyrians were up here 
Their headquarters was up here on the Tigris River, and uh, it was a place called Nineveh in the ancient world. We would call that same area Baghdad now. And all of the Assyrian Empire was up here between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And they were, they came down and overrun everyone. And then Babylon, which was this area of Iraq, had their headquarters on the on the Euphrates River. But here's the Persian Gulf. We had that Gulf War back in the early 90s. And this is Iraq right here. Well, the Babylonians overthrew the Assyrians around 3, excuse me, 612 B.C. And then they came in and carried Israel into captivity. Then they were overthrown by the Persians. The Persians is what we call Iran. They were overthrown by the Persians. And Persians were overthrown by Alexander the Great. That was approximately 3 32 uh, B.C. Alexander the Great didn't live long. He, his father is the one who built up this uh, Macedonian Empire. His name was Philip. He's the one that gave Alexander the Great all of his training. And Philip of Macedon, Macedon is this area. It's up here. It's upper Greece. That's Macedon or Macedonia. When Paul got the Macedonian call there in the 16th chapter of Acts, he was over here in Troas. He had a dream or a vision, and the Philippians there in the upper section, this is called the Aegean Sea right here. And they were right up here, right where that little fingers are, uh, Philippi and Thessalonica is right there. Well, he hears this Macedonian call. You hear it in the song. We have heard the Macedonian call today. Send the light, send the light. Well, that was a Macedonian call that Paul received, and that's Macedon up there. If you're from Macedonia, we're considered little less than one of the brilliant Grecian scholars from down here in Athens or down here at Corinth. They were considered country-ignorant people but alexander the great showed them a little different than that and alex the great took over around 332 but he died around 320 in that neighborhood and he was a young man he was only in his early 30s when he died but he gave all of the world he gave all of the world its languages All of its languages gave him the corne. He propagated all these other, what you would call glossa. Glossa means foreign language. Foreign language. And we get the word glossary from that. A glossary is a section of a book. Section of book words that are foreign to the average reader. You can turn over the glossary and find out what these words mean. When I teach on this, I'm trying to give you some facts about it. And what this does, this destroys all of the all the Pentecostalism. Pentecostalism, they taught, they teach tongues, which is absolutely not true. It, there's no doubt about it, but they're not going to study things like this. 
or I'm going to show you this compendia. The compendia, these are magnificent books. If you can get the first two volumes, the literature, well, I picked up the literature of the sages. I don't know what I was doing. Uh, Jewish people in the first century. Jewish people in the first century, volume one and volume two. If you can get these, they're very expensive, but they're worth every nickel you pay for them. It has unbelievable amount of information in them. I'm going to give you some information of, out of them. It was an effort on Jews and Christians started in the early 60s to print all of this cultural intermix between the Jews and the Christians. And they'll tell you a lot of the things about Scripture that you're not going to hear anywhere else. Things that the Pentecostals and the Baptists don't want to hear. A lot of times when I'm teaching you out of some of these books, these are like authorities, encyclopedias and so forth. Now, let me read this about the corne that Alexander the Great gave us in the common street language. He says that these corne will differ in our day and time as much as Spanish and Italian. Now, Spanish is a Latin language and Italian is a Latin language. But just because you can speak one don't mean you can speak the other or understand the other. You will recognize a word from time to time. I recognize words in the Spanish language when I'll see it on a paper. And I'll recognize uh, roots of words in in it uh, in Italian. The corne, the spread of the corne or common Greek tongue. If you don't understand this, you're not going to understand how wicked the Pentecostal tongues movement is there's nothing to it it's emotional thing deserves the spread of the corner or common greek tongue deserves special mention as a potent factor in the religious propaganda of the following centuries before alexander's day athens had chiseled for herself her dialect into that classic perfection which is the wonder of students but greece never had a uniform national language. It wasn't uniform. They had a different dialect in every city-state. Each separate city-state had its own patois, P-A-T-O-I-S. And it translates dialect. They had their own patois or dialect, which in most cases was as distinct from that of its neighbor a couple of leagues distance as are Spanish and Italian. I didn't make that up. The term Hellas, H-E-L-L-A-S. Hellenistic. Is another term for culturalizing the world with Greek culture, idioms, metaphors, and philosophies. The term Hellas never became a national or linguistic unity, the chief bond of union being a more or less Catholic religion. They don't mean Roman Catholic. They mean universal. The word Catholic means universal. While there was no uniform language in which Greek could converse with Greek, in other words, when they would come to Israel... These Jews that had been scattered all over the world, they couldn't converse and couldn't even understand each other. 
while there was no uniform language and Greeks could converse with Greek, it was impossible for Greek to exercise her intellectual hegemony. Hegemony means leadership. They couldn't raise themselves up above other things because there was no no chief language of the Greek world. If a man must learn a dozen Greek patois or dialects and a half a dozen oriental tongues or glossa before he could travel and exchange ideas with men of other races, he would prefer to remain at home. It was too hard. How hard do you think this is going to be for the the 11 apostles that are left after Judas kills himself and Jesus tells these ignorant fishermen from northern Galilee go into all the world and teach all nations they're going whoa we can't do that they have all these these dialects we're just a bunch of fishermen from northern Galilee how can we do that that Aramaic which had for centuries served as a diplomatic language between the powers of the Nile and those of the Euphrates and Tigris was no longer adequate And the perfect precision of the Attic Greek, which was their classical Greek, was as impossible for the ordinary man as it seems now to a schoolboy in his first year. He's saying this was impossible. Let me read you something else. It is important to realize what a stimulus to intellectual advancement and what excellent medium for the missionary activity of the subsequent centuries the Corne proved, in which men could exchange ideas from Moltan to Syracuse and from Macedonia to the cataracts of the Nile. It became the ordinary language of the liturgy and ritual of those cult brotherhoods which promoted the equality of mankind. And this British lingua franca was a better medium for the transmission of metaphysical theories than the founder of any world religion had ever had at his disposal, therefore, or since. They did not know exactly how to propagate the truth with all these different dialects of the Corne. I'm going to take you into that, but I want us to go back here over to Acts, the second chapter. Peter is the man that brought so much to the forefront of Christianity. Number one, he's the one that would question Jesus and say, and he's the one that would, Jesus said, whom do men say that I am? And he would say, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Peter was one of the apostles that Jesus took with him when he went into the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter was a guy that was always there, sometimes putting his foot in his mouth, not unlike us. And sometimes he was doing one of the important things for God. He is the one that starts off teaching, getting the message to the Gentiles. And that's what I want to talk to you about. He's the guy in the second chapter of Acts. There's no way you can teach the second chapter of Acts without understanding how this all came about. You have to understand how. They were meeting at Pentecost in Acts 2. Pentecost. And Peter's going to be the chief spokesman there at Pentecost. 
you had three feasts through the year that all the males were required to come back to, all the males in Israel. But you have to understand their scattering. You can't understand why they're all talking these different languages if you don't understand how they came into it. They had Passover, and you and you had, that was on Nisan 14. That was March, April. We don't know exactly what day. That It's just March, April. Pentecost is 50 days later. It comes to the word pent, means five. We think of a pentagram as a five-pointed star. Pent means five. Pentateuch. Pent. T-E-U-C-H. Is the first five books of the Bible. Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. First five books of the Bible. Now, you also had down here in the seventh month. The seventh month. This is all festivals that begin in the spring when the crops come out. And you can go back to Deuteronomy 28 when they're coming out of the wilderness. And God says, if you obedient to my word, your basket will be full. It'll start to be full at Passover because that's when they start harvesting the first crops. They harvest the first fruits of the first crops, the wheat, any of the bread, the bread offerings that come in that have to do with wheat or oats and so forth. And then 50 days later, these 50 days is called the Feast of of weeks seven weeks seven to seven is 49 seven times seven is 49 and then the 50th day after that is Pentecost feast of weeks that's what they call it that was another name for it and then you have down here in the seventh month September October in September, October, you've got the you've got several things coupled together. You got the feast of ingathering, and the reason it's called the feast of ingathering is because you are at the end of the harvest, end of harvest. So everything Israel is being promised, food wise, is going to come in this time period here. Then God says, if you're obedient to me, I'll take you through the winter. Well, the pagans said, we have to take ourselves through, and they invented these other festivals like Christ's Mass or the Feast of Saturn, and they had to invent uh, the end of the harvest, which they came up with Halloween or All Hallows' Eve and so forth, and they came up with Mardi Gras and Ishtar. That was their dark months. We're not going to talk about that. What we're talking about is these months right here. And this seventh month, the tenth day of the seventh month, tenth day of the seventh month was 
called the, uh, the uh, Day of Atonement. This is the day, tenth day of the seventh month. The seventh month was Tishri. And this, that tenth day, that's when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. That's when he'd go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle the Ark of the Covenant on this Day of Atonement. The Feast of Ingathering was also called the Feast. These are all the same thing. Feast of Tabernacles. And they would all go out and and spend so much time in a little tent or a little tabernacle they would build. And it was had all of these different names for it. Or Feast of Huts. I've talked to a lot of people that's lived in New York and they say the Jews up there will still build a little hut outside their apartment and go out there and live in it during the Feast of Huts. These feasts, these are the feast days of God. If you'll notice in Deuteronomy 28 and over in Exodus through all these different verses, God says, I'll fill up your fields. I'll fill up your basket. I'll fill up your storehouses when you get the end of the end of the uh, uh, harvesting. That is, if you're obedient to me, but if you disobey me, I will take your harvest away. I'll send famine that was a famine had to do with this harvesting time and God says I'm going to call all the males males to come back to Jerusalem for these feasts here for the Passover Pentecost and for the feast of end gathering or feast of huts feast of tabernacles all the same thing in that seventh month. That's everything to do. I want us to look over there in Exodus 23rd chapter and look at these festivals that all the males had to come back to. Go over to Exodus 23. You say, what what does this all have to do with Acts, the second chapter? Remember, as we go through this, remember Israel was scattered all over the earth. Because they kept going after Baal and the grove and Shemash and Molech. And northern Israel was scattered. Northern Israel was scattered. I'm going to try to be as detailed as I can be in this. Because I don't know if everybody's gotten hold of it yet. Northern Israel was scattered by the Assyrians. In In 722 B.C., the Syrians off this, their headquarters is on the, in Nineveh, that was their capital city, and they occupied all this area in here. And then, then Babylon is going to overthrow the Assyrians, and they're going to carry southern Judah away into captivity, all because they go after all of these Baal and Grove and Shemash and Molech. And what that does, that connects, that connects directly and indirectly all these feasts when God says if you go after any other gods Baal, Grove, Shemash, Molech they went after hundreds of other gods God says I'll bring famine I'll, I will do it any one of two or three ways I'll cause locusts to come in and devour your crops 
They're going, oh, no, no, no. And when Samuel steps forward to anoint Saul as king of Israel in the 12th chapter of 1 Samuel, he warns me, says, don't go after this bell and grove and all of these things that you've had a tendency to do. If you do that, God will send so much rain to wipe your crops away. And they went, oh, no, don't do that. We'll behave ourselves, but they didn't. So the fact that God does eventually scatter Israel, that does not invalidate the commandment that he gives to all the males to come back to these festivals. So they're going to be scattered all over the earth. I've got a picture of it. And this is a picture out of the compendia about them all coming back. I had this printed out of this book right here. This is the compendia. And this is where they've been all scattered to. And they have to come back to all of these, from all these lands. Notice every arrow is pointing this direction to bring them back to Jerusalem for the three major feasts. Now, let me just say one thing before I get any further. When they would come back to Passover and Pentecost would be 50 days later, and Passover would last for at least, uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread would last seven days. It was not, it wasn't profitable for people that are a long way off. If someone come from Cyrene here, it wasn't profitable for them to come back home, or especially they're over here in Rome. They coming over here for Passover and then going back, and 50 days later coming back, to to Pentecost, they didn't see any sense in doing that. So a lot of them would stay over in in Jerusalem until Pentecost got there. What would they do? They would sit with the rabbis and study the Torah with them for that 50 days. But when it came time to leave after Pentecost, it's a long time up to September, October, so they, most of them would go back home and then come back again. In all probability, this is why the Jews came up with their own businesses and they were accused of being greedy because they had to, they had to arrange their coming to the feast to match up with being at home. So the best thing they could do was start their own business and come back and be able to stop it and start it whenever they wanted to. Now, look here in Exodus, the 23rd chapter. I want to verify that these laws of coming back, this is what's happening in Acts, the second chapter. They're Jews from every nation under heaven. The reason they're under every nation, they were scattered for going after these idol gods. And this is a part of the story of Peter. Look over here in, in Exodus. Exodus is the law. This is not God inviting people to come back. This is God's law. In Exodus 23 and verse 14. Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. That's the same thing as the Passover. You can see that uh, in Luke 22 and 1. And the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover as the way it starts. Feast of Unleavened Bread, they started the feast the next day after the 14th, and it would go for seven days. And the first day of that feast was a uh, Sabbath, and the last day was a Sabbath. 
Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread, and thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded thee, in the time appointed of the month Abib. Now, people will get mad and correct me for that and say, well, it's the month Abib, it's not uh, the month Nisan. Well, Abib is what it was called in Israel. And it was called Nisan in Babylon. In two different names, okay? <laughs> I've had people say, wouldn't, it be, wouldn't Nisan as Abib? Well, same thing. All right. For it is in it thou camest out of Egypt. That's Passover. That's in the 12th chapter of this book. And none shall appear before me empty. You have to bring a lamb or a half shekel to buy a lamb with. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits, that's that's first fruits is is um, 50 days later, seven sets of seven weeks. And then the 50th day after that is the feast of first fruits. That's Pentecost. You've got to know that Pentecost feast of first fruits are the same thing. Which thou hast sown in the field and the feast of end gathering. That's in the seventh month. You would think that these would be in flashing lights, wouldn't you? Boop, boop, boop. No, it's not. You've got to be able to differentiate between the three. The feast of end gathering, which is in the end of the year. The end of the harvest year, you have to know that it don't mean in December. Their year didn't end in December. They had a harvest year. They had a harvest year that would start in Nisan and end in Tishri. But they had a year that would start in Nisan and end in Nisan. But this is this is talking about the harvest year. In fact, the harvest year is God's promise to Israel if they're obedient to him. You know what he's saying? Exactly what he's saying. Now, so he says, the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, and the feast of ingathering, which is the end of the harvest year, when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field, it's the end of the harvest. Three times in the year all thy males shall appear before the Lord. What about when they're scattered? They're supposed to appear even after they're scattered, aren't they? And that's what many of them tried to do that were devout. Wouldn't you have to be devout? You're really committed to God to travel from over here in Carthage, go all the way to Israel. You have to really be. And you're a Jew that's been scattered over there by the Assyrians and by the Babylonians. They've been scattered all over the world. This man that drew this, drew it for the compendia, and I had Dan Wilson put this on this, on this. he loaded this up for us so we could see what they were doing. And I, that's in the compendia. Compendia is a fantastic set of books. There's, I've got 11 of them. The ones I suggest you get is the first two volumes of Jews in the first century. Uh, I've got the first one over here. And the other two I would suggest you get when I'm teaching on the halakha is the literature of the sages. That's excellent book on oral Torah, halakha. And people want to know, what do you get on that? This right here. You come up here and get that title on it. When I'm teaching on halakha, people don't know where to get something on it. That's the best thing you can get. That along with... Uh, Mr. Lightfoot's commentary on the New Testament from the Talmud and Hebraica. Now, look here. Let's 
get a second testimony to this over in Exodus thirty-four twenty-three. Exodus thirty-four. We probably need more than one witness. Thirty-four and twenty-three. But you got to start a little before that. A little before that. Start back here in uh, verse eighteen. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's the Passover. Shalt thou keep seven days, shalt thou eat unleavened bread, as I commanded thee. The Passover is spiritual now. We being many are one bread and one body, and we're to be unleavened, aren't we? And that's talking about that man that's having an affair with his stepmother in the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians. He's called the unleavened bread of the spiritual Passover. And I command thee in the time of the month of Bebe, for the month of Bebe that thou camest out of Egypt, all that openeth the matrix, the firstborn is mine. That goes back a long way. Uh, and every firstling among the cattle, that means the firstborn of the woman, the firstborn of the cattle, the firstborn of all the sheep, and so forth. But the firstling of the ass thou shalt redeem, you have to buy it back with a lamb, because a because the ass is an unclean animal. You got to chew the cud and part the hoof. And the, un, the unclean ass does not. And if thou redeem him not, when you redeem him, he will be a, a substitute. Thou shalt break his neck, all the firstborn of thy sons. Thou shalt. I can't see it. Thou shalt redeem and none shall appear before me empty. You can't come to God empty without a sacrifice. He said, you got to redeem it. Six days shalt thou work, but on the seventh day thou shalt rest in earring time. Notice, seventh day is for rest. The word Sabbath means rest. And in harvest thou shalt rest. Thou shalt observe the feast of weeks. There's a second one. Of the first fruits of the wheat harvest and the feasts in gathering of the year's end, thrice in the year he names the three times first and then he says three times in the year shall all your men children appear before the lord god the god of israel and then he goes on through this then one more time let's look over here in deuteronomy 16 deuteronomy 16 All right, 16 and verse 16. 16 and verse 16. Three times in a year shall all thy males appear before the Lord thy God in the place which he shall choose in the Feast of Unleavened Bread, Passover, the Feast of Weeks, Pentecost, and in the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Ingathering, same thing. And they shall not appear before the Lord empty. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord thy God, which he hath given thee. Now, let's go back over to Acts 2. We've established this. All the males have to come back to Jerusalem. What has happened to them? They've been scattered all over the face of the earth. Let me erase this and place it up your eye. All right. So now we are convinced that God law, God's laws are forever and all males have to come back to Jerusalem. 
all the males for every festival. They've been coming back. When you get to Acts 2, they've been coming back for hundreds of years. They can't even talk to each other because they all have a different koine. They have a different dialect of the Greek language. They don't even know how to get along. In the compendia, they will tell you they were struggling with this because they would all come back and they're all speaking a different language and they're walking through the streets at these three festivals. And as they're walking through the streets, they can't even say hello to each other or goodbye. They might think the guy's cussing you or something, you know. They didn't even know how to talk to each other during these festivals. So what they did, according to the compendia, excellent said. He said what they did, or they said, they were probably a bunch of contributors to this, what they did about 200 years before Christ, 200 B.C., they were struggling what to do when they got to Jerusalem. So what they did, they started building synagogues in Jerusalem. And they would build... They would build a Philippian synagogue, kind of coupled with a Thessalonian synagogue. And they would build a Corinthian synagogue, maybe coupled with an Athenian synagogue. And they would build a synagogue for the churches here, the ones that would speak the same dialect at Ephesus or Pergamos. And they would build a Babylonian synagogue. And they would build an Ethiopian synagogue, an Egyptian synagogue, so that the Jews were in these countries when they got here, they could go to their own personal synagogue and talk to the people there. The Pentecostals don't even know this was going on. They didn't know how to communicate. They couldn't. So when they build these synagogues, then they can start talking to each other. But Jesus is wanting to, he's got the Jews blinded as of when he comes in Jerusalem. Right before this Pentecost, he comes to Jerusalem. He's 33 years old. He's been preaching since he was 30. And his ministry is only three to three and a half years long. So he's 33 years old, 33 and a half, somewhere in that neighborhood. Here at Acts 2. Uh, Jesus is not there in Acts 2. Peter here is in Acts 2. Jesus is 33 when they kill him just 50 days before Acts 2. Acts 2, he's 50, He's 30 years old, thir, excuse me, he's 33 years old when they hang him on the cross. Then Acts 2 comes 50 years, 50 days later. I'll get it right in a minute. 50 days later. And this is the Lord's method of pouring out out of his spirit on all flesh you got to keep remembering on all flesh he is only up to this point he's even told the apostles when he starts preaching only go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel there in Matthew 10 he said do not go to the Gentiles We're not going to open the door to them until Acts 2. 
He doesn't say it that way, but that's when it happens. Until Acts 2, he's going to pour out of his spirit. The Holy Spirit is truth on all flesh. All flesh would be red, yellow, white, black, and brown flesh. That would be all flesh, whereas in the Old Testament, God only opened up his truth to the Jewish flesh or to the Semitic, S-H-E-M-E-T-I-C, Semitic flesh. We'll get that from the name Shem, and only from Adam down through down through Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, only Israel received the truth here. And then God blinds their eyes when he comes in Jerusalem on Luke, the, the 19th chapter, and here he is just four days before he's going to be crucified on a Friday. And he was crucified on Friday. That was the Jews. Uh, it was the Jewish uh, Eve of the, of the Passover in its feminine gender. Now, he's going to He's going to be crucified here, and then Peter's going to stand up and say, this is that which is spoken of by the prophet Joel, that in the last days, in the last, we said it Sunday night, I believe it's the last 2,000 years. I, I believe that. In the last days, the Lord shall pour out of his spirit on all flesh, and this will be, this will be, the the Gentile spiritual Israel and the only way he can do that is have Peter preach and the Holy Spirit will interpret the words to the ears of the people that are listening there and they're coming from every nation under heaven the Bible says so one more time, look here in Acts, the second chapter. Acts, the second chapter, and probably the key verse is verse 5 to start with. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, devout men. If they were devout, the word is pletho, they were influenced it means to be fully imbued or influenced by the Spirit, pletho. That is that word. Uh, that is the word there. There were Jews, devout men, out of every nation under heaven. And they had all come back from their various lands, and they could not understand each other in their worship of Jehovah God. So, God says, I'm going to perform a miracle, so when you go back home, you can take what you hear Peter say over here, and you can take it in your own dialect where you were born. That's why they say in that in that verse 8, how here we ever man, and our own tongue, our own dialect, Wherein we were born. How do we hear? 
That's the key word there. Here on D-I-A-L-E-K-T-O-S. That is not some Pentecostal jibber-jabber, shandala-manda, kandai-manda, shanda, mumbo-jumbo. Because that's all they're doing. It's foolishness. Should you say that? Absolutely, it's a lie. Pentecostalism, look in the camera. I hate Pentecostalism. I've never liked it, traveling those churches as a gospel singer, and they're all falling down on the floor and jumping up and down like, you know, like a bunch of fools. It's not Bible. You guys that are doing that, you old gospel singers that I knew, if you're doing that, you're involved in something that's foolish. You can't even study this history of it. Now, let's look here. In So they said, how do we hear every man our own dialect when we were born? What were they talking about? They say it right after that, verse 9. There were Parthian Jews, Medes Jews, Elamite Jews, and we all had a different dialect of the Koine. And dwellers in Mesopotamia Jews, that's in Babylon, on the Euphrates River. And in Judea Jews, that's the mountains around Jerusalem. Cappadocian Jews, that's up right under the Black Sea. In Pontus and Asia, Asia is all this part of Turkey, the seven churches of Asia right in there. Asian Jews, Phrygian Jews right on the coast, right down here on the coast is Phrygia. Phrygian Jews from all over everywhere, and they're all speaking a different dialect. Phrygian Jews, Pamphylian Jews right on the same area of Phrygia. In Egypt, Egyptian Jews. And in the parts of Libya, Libyan Jews. Here's Libya right here. I always remember Libya because that is the, that's the Bay of Libya. That's where Ronald Reagan put a, a blockade of ships there so that that crazy man down there in Libya could come to a standstill. What was his name? Qaddafi. Uh, was that Qaddafi? Nuttier than a fruitcake. And that's, I always remember that because I remember Reagan putting those ships there, blockaded ships, saying, we'll blockade everything, you won't get any food. And that's what stopped him in his tracks. Then he says, Phrygian Jews, Pamphylian Jews, Egyptian Jews, and in parts of Libya about Cyrene. That's interesting. Cyrene. What was that Cyrenian Jew doing over here when Jesus was being crucified and he was carrying his cross to Golgotha and he fell and he couldn't carry it any longer? Who was it that picked his cross up? Simon the Cyrenian. He was over there for that festival of Pentecost. And he was speaking he speaking his his language now. Crete Cretan Jews and Arabian Jews. Cretan Jews. Here's Crete right here. Jews were coming from Crete and they were coming from Arabia down here. They were been scattered because they were going after idol worship, going after Baal in the Grove and Shemash and Molech. And all these were brought into the church in 325 A.D. at the Nicene Council by Constantine and renamed the Feast of Saturn Christ's Mass. 
God's got the Jews scattered all over the world. <clears throat> Strangers of Rome. Jews and proselytes. Strangers were proselyte Jews. And he renamed, he calls them both Jews and proselytes. Cretan Jews, Arabian Jews. We do hear them, we do hear them speak in our dialects the wonderful works of God. We're hearing them in our own dialect. Now, I'm going to go back to the first part of this chapter. Let me give you some things on the the uh, each time this word dialect is used. Back up to verse 19 when, uh, for chapter 1 and this is talking about when Judas uh, speaking of Judas verse 18 now this man purchased a field with the reward of iniquity and falling headlong he burst asunder in the midst and all his bowels gushed out and it was known unto all the dwellers at Jerusalem insomuch as they, that field is called in their proper dialect dialectos a seldoma that is to say the field of blood that's also the word dialectos the same word in verse 8 of chapter 2 how he were every man and our own dialect when we were born how do I hear in the dialect of the corne and I was born over here in Greece in Corinth I'm hearing the Corinthian dialect it's not Pentecostal jibber jabber and I hate that stuff because it makes no sense whatsoever. Now, I don't know exactly. I've got so many places I want to go. Let me give you a couple other places. Go to Acts. Uh, Acts. Acts 21.40. I'm going to give you these other places this is mentioned. Acts 21. I want to be thorough with this because... I believe what's happening in the Pentecostal church is a disgrace and a blasphemy towards God. They're too lazy to study where this stuff comes from. I despise Pentecostalism, hate it with every bone in my body because it is an out-and-out lie. You'd have to throw away these dialects and glosses, wouldn't you? You'd have to throw away the whole story of Pentecost in Acts 2. Now look here in Acts 21, verse 40. Verse 40. Paul is being led into a castle by soldiers. And Paul said Paul was to be led into the castle, verse 37. He said unto the chief captain, May I speak unto thee? Who said, Can you speak Greek? He can speak his dialect. Art thou art not thou that Egyptian which before these days madest an uproar and ledest out unto the wilderness four thousand men that were murderers? But Paul said, I'm not that man. You're talking about somebody else. I am a man which am a Jew of Tarsus, a city in Cilicia. A citizen of no main city, it's not some small city, it's a very prominent city 
in our day and time. And I beseech thee, suffer me to speak unto the people, if he can speak Greek. And when he had given him license, Paul stood on the stairs and beckoned with the hand unto the people. And when there was made a great silence, he spake unto them in the Hebrew, it says tongue, but it's the word dialectos. He's speaking to them in Greek. He was asking if he was speaking it, and he is. So he was evidently speaking to this soldier in Latin or some other language. And he opens his mouth and speaks in the Hebrew dialect. There was a Hebrew language, but he's not speaking in the Hebrew. Hebrew. He's speaking the Hebrew dialect. They had a dialect there at Jerusalem of the Greek koine. Do you understand what it's saying? It's not saying he's talking to them in Hebrew. He's talking in the Hebrew dialect of the koine at Jerusalem. And then look here in, in 22nd chapter in verse 2. Let's read one and two. Here's Paul talking. Men and brethren, I, well, he didn't say Shandalakandai, Mandalamandai, Mambo Jumbo. No. Men and brethren and fathers, hear ye my defense which I make unto the make now unto you. And when they heard that he spake in the Hebrew dialect of the Corne, they kept the more silence, and he saith, and he doesn't say Shandalakandai. He doesn't say that. He says, I am verily a man, so forth, and so on. Then we look over here in 26 and 14. Acts 26 and 14. Twenty-six and fourteen. Paul is talking about to Agrippa. He's telling about his experience on the Damascus Road. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew, dialectos, not the Hebrew language, in the Hebrew dialect. And here's what Jesus says to him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks, the ox goads. The ox goads was right behind the oxen, and when they kicked it, all it did was hurt them and make them go forward. He said, you're kicking against the goads. And he said it in the Hebrew dialect. Jesus is talking. Do you think Jesus is talking to Paul in tongues and say, Shonda like I die, Paul. <laughs> it's stupid to what they say. No, he was talking to him. So these are the, the word dialectos is mentioned six times in the, and it's all in the book of Acts. The word dialectos is not in the 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians. It's only glossa. And the purpose for that was because Corinth was right in the middle of the Mediterranean and right in the center of all the trade and all the salespeople and the sailors all come through Corinth and they had dozens of glossa going on there and Paul said don't anybody come into the church and speak in a glossa a foreign language without an interpreter you bring one in here you bunch of sailors coming in here, and you bunch of salespeople coming in here, and you travelers don't talk in your glossa. Get over to the side, the most by twos and threes. 
And that's another whole story. Now, let's go back. I'm going to read some things to you out of. Let's go back to the second chapter. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord and one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. That puzzled me for the longest time. I picked up my, I picked up these books one day, these, these uh, Hastings Encyclopedia of Religion. And I was looking at the D volume. I just thumbed through it. They got to dispose of the dead. And I thought, let me see here. Let me look over there at Babel and see what they said about the disposal of the dead. And the first paragraph says, rushing mighty wind was a Babylonian term that meant breath. That's amazing. I went, whoa. You can't believe what you run across in these things. It meant breath. Why would God use a Babylonian terminology to all these Jews from all over the world? Because they lived under Babylonian rule for 500 years. They went out from under that very long when they come to this Pentecost. So there was a breath come from heaven. Rushing mighty wind and has filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues. I love this part right here. Cloven tongues like as of fire. Cloven is the word diamorizo. It means petitioned off. Cloven means to divide. It's divided tongues. Cloven means to divide the tongues. It doesn't mean this little red tongue over to somebody and you see it in books. You'll see it in Pentecostal books. It doesn't mean something like this painted red. That's not it. A tongue of fire was someone preaching the hard truth. I believe the best place to find that is Jeremiah 5 and 14. You need to put this right beside that verse, Jeremiah, I mean, Jeremiah 5. Jeremiah 5. Now, here's the tongue of fire. Verse 14. Wherefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, because ye speak this word, behold, I will make my words in thy mouth fire, Jeremiah, and this people will be wood, and my word will devour them. That's a tongue of fire. Look over here in Jeremiah, the 23rd chapter. Jeremiah 23rd chapter. He's condemning Israel for their going after idol gods. Verse 28, the prophet that hath a dream, let us tell, let him tell a dream. And he that hath a word, let him speak my word faithfully. 
What is the chaff to the wheat, saith the Lord? Is not my word like as a fire, saith the Lord? And like a hammer that breaketh the rock in pieces? And look over here in Revelation 11. Boy, what these so-called scholars do to this is disgusting. Revelation 11. A tongue of fire was somebody preaching the hard word of God. That's what I preach here. A tongue of fire. A gloss of fire is what I'm preaching. Here in Revelation 11. Talking about the two witnesses, which is the church, it's the priest and the king. I don't have time to go into that. Verse 5, the two witnesses are the two candlesticks, the two olive trees. The Bible says in Zechariah, the fourth chapter, that these two olive trees are the two witnesses and the two that represent God in the earth. And the two that represent God in the earth is a priest and king, and God hath made us priests and kings in that first chapter of Revelation. So that's us. And if any man will hurt the two witnesses, fire proceedeth out of their mouth. It don't mean they're a flamethrower. They go, not what that's talking about. It's talking about the word of God will come out of their mouth, will devour you. And devoureth their enemies, even will hurt them. He must in this manner be killed. When God gets through with you, he'll destroy you with his word. Now back over to verse 3 of Acts 2. And there appeared unto them, there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them. It's not talking about a little tongue of fire setting down upon them. It's talking about what comes upon the priest of the king of God is the word of God that fire comes out of our mouth. And that's the word of God. Is that hard to understand? That's, that's easy as falling off a log, isn't it? If you go to somewhere else in the Bible besides this, and you come up and say, fire's going to come out of their mouth. I've heard preachers say, uh, they're going to be like flamethrowers. They're going to come out of their mouth and devour you. Idiots. In verse 4, they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Remember, Holy Ghost is the same word as Holy Spirit, Hagios Pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A. Pneuma is the word spirit. It means breath. Hagios, holy, means pure. It's the same word, holy, Hagios Pneuma, means pure or single. It means what comes out of our mouth is going to be the holy breath of God and it will consume people. And they were all filled with truth. The Holy Spirit's truth. John 14, 15, 16, John 15, 26, John 16, 13. First John 5 and 6, the Spirit is the truth. Truth, aletheia, means to take the cover off. That's what will consume men when you rip the cover off their life and say what they really are. And began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Other tongues is the word heteroglossa.
means hetero means other. That's a Greek word. Heterosexual means other sex. Homo is also a Greek word. Homo. Confess. Homologia. Homologeo. H-O-M-O-L-O-G-E-O. That's the word confess. Homo means of the same. A homosexual means of the same sex. Logos means of the same word. It means to agree with. You don't just confess Christ one time walking down an aisle. You confess him every day. You agree with him every day everywhere you go. And people are going to persecute you for that. They're not going to want to hear that Christmas is Christ's mass. It's Roman Catholicism. It's pagan. It was against the law to celebrate Christmas 300 years ago in America. Say that much to somebody and they'll get mad at you. They want to curse you. Throw you out of their house or wherever you are. Now, they spoke with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Pentecostals think that means to make guttural sounds. That is dumb. D-U-M-B. Dumb. Apo. P-H. T-H. E G G O M A I. I felt the thing of my means to speak clearly. I'm going to have to give you some stuff on this. Speak so clearly you can be easily understood. That's what it means. It doesn't mean to make guttural sounds. If you're in Pentecostalism, there's some old gospel singers that I see once in a while around town. What you're following is disgust. You know who you are. I am thoroughly put out with your doctrine. You have to be a Pentecostal practically being gospel music because 90% of all gospel singings are promoted by Pentecostal people or Pentecostal preachers. And they have literally just infiltrated churches all over the world i hate pentecostalism because it's a lie faith healing is a lie if you don't think it is why didn't one of your people go and heal oral roberts while he's dying of pulmonary disease or heart disease he died one of the two and kenneth hagan died of the other these two world famous Kenneth Hagin has an institute. He's the guy that started the naming and claiming in America. He had a Hagin's Institute. I called it Hagin's Pagan Institute because that's what it was. It's just hellish doctrine. All you have to do is say it with your mouth and you can be healed. A fellow used to come here and said he played guitar for Kenneth Hagin's band out there. And he said supposedly when Hagin was dying, he called in some of the preachers and called in Jesse DePlantis and said, Boys, I think we've been preaching the wrong thing. Said Jesse DePlantis just stomped out and said, It works for me. It does until the day you die, boy. If faith healing was true, the two greatest faith healers in America should have been able to be healed at 85 and 90 years old. Nobody can be healed at 85 and 90 when you got heart disease. 
I've got a heart disease. I've had a heart. I've had triple bypass surgery. I had a heart attack. And uh, you don't get healed of that unless they perform a procedure on you. And then they'll turn around and say, well, you, it was the, we prayed and the heart surgeon healed you. They find a way out of everything, don't they? All right. Now, utterance. To speak so clearly as to be easily understood. Twice, two other places that word is mentioned. Further in this chapter, verse 14. Peter standing up with the eleven after Judas is dead and they've replaced him with Matthias with the eleven that makes Peter twelve Peter standing up with eleven lifted up his voice and apophathangamai said said and apophathangamai said in utterance of the exact same word in the original text Peter didn't say shandalamandai kandai did he no he didn't say that Peter said ye men of Judea you could understand him Good grief. And they say it's guttural sounds you make and the Holy Spirit speaking through you so Satan can't hear it, so he can't uh, thwart your words and do something to destroy him. And it's mentioned one other time. Let's go over here to Acts 26 chapter. Paul is taken, standing before Festus, one of the Roman governors over there. He's been taken... And Festus says to Paul, you're, in verse 24, Paul is standing, he had just stood before Agrippa, and Agrippa passes him to Festus. Verse 24, and as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside myself, beside thyself. Beside thyself means to be a raving maniac. Manaomai, M-A-I-N-O-M-A-I, M-A-I-N-O, M-A-I-N-O-M-A-I, means a raving maniac. Festus says, you're a raving maniac, Paul, what you're saying. Much learning doth make you mad, Jim Brown. You're out of your mind. You can't get out of your mind learning. No. And Paul said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but I speak forth the words of truth and soberness. Speak forth is the word apophathengomai. And he said, I'm speaking truth. When I apophathengomai, I take the cover off. A-L-E-T-H-E-I-A. That's the word truth. Paul said, this is what I'm doing when I apophathangamai. I am speaking aletheia, which comes from the word lanthano. Lanthano means to lie hid or conceal or conceal. And when you place the alpha in front of a word as a negative particle, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, this is the way it's written in the original text. Alanthano is the word aletheia. It means not to hide anything. Paul said, I'm not hiding anything. And when you speak that jibber-jabber of the Pentecostals, 
You're hiding. You're supposed to be preaching a secret language that only God can understand. Baloney. That's what I got to say to that. You have to speak for the words of truth with soberness. Sophrenay. S-O-P-H-R-O-N-E. You have to be sane. I'm speaking sane. I'm taking the cover off with apophathangamides, what Paul is saying. Now, let me give you a couple more words with this. A couple more words. This word, apophathangamide, comes from, I got it here somewhere. I was going to give it to you. It comes from apo and fathangomai. I had it here somewhere. Apo, it comes from apo, meaning to set off. Apo and ph, ph, e-g-g-o-m-a-i. Fathangomai means to speak. And it don't mean to speak jibber-jabber. It has to do with speaking some truth. Now, I've got it here somewhere, and I've been messing around with my papers. All right, I'll get it for you here. All right, here it is. Look in Acts 4, 18. Acts 4. Here's the word for thingomai. Acts 4.18. This is where the Pharisees come to Peter and John when they've healed this man. And they said, don't speak in this name anymore. And they said, there's none other name under heaven given by men, given among men whereby we must be saved. And then they go back. Uh, to the apostles in the verse 18. And these men called Peter and John, commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. That word speak is the word phthangomai. Don't speak his name. Now from phthangomai, we get two words, phthangomai. It comes from P-H-E-M-I. Femi means something that is said. Something, and you've got this word mentioned 58 times in the New Testament. The word femi, and each time it's either said or something along that line. Said or sayest. And it it also comes from the word fingas. Comes from the word feme and fingas. P H E N G O S. Fingas is the word light. So fathangomai would mean to speak the light. Or open up things so everybody can understand. It has nothing to do with that Pentecostal stuff. That's a terrible, terrible doctrine. So 
Apophathengamai means to speak so clearly, to set off a speaking clearly so everyone can understand it. Now, let's go back to Acts 2. Acts 2. How much time do I have, Mike? I don't know if I'm going to get through this. I won't get through reading to you from this. I may just come back this next week. I want to read something to you from the compendia that will tell you all about what we're talking about. I didn't make any of this up. I'm teaching you like you would learn in some class. If there's any seminaries that even teaches on this, which I don't even think there's any professors that know this. I'm teaching like you would learn in some college. And I'm wanting to use some some material from the compendia. This is, I like this part so much. I outlined all the sentences. I love this this set of books. Let me see here. Let me just read to you. I'll come back to Acts 2, but let me read some things to you out of this out of this uh, compendium. I got it on paper here. As regards the payment of the half shekel that was required of all the men that were coming back, they're going to have to buy a sacrifice or a lamb. As regard to the half shekel, it is difficult to say whether all the Jews living in the diaspora, D-I-A-S-P-O-R-A, That ain't working. Diaspora is what you call is most of you have you've heard of the of the diaspora, haven't you? Most of you've heard of that. The diaspora or diaspora as it's called comes from dia and spore. It means the scattering of the spore, spore is masculine gender. We get the word sperma from that. That's the word seed. When the Bible says the seed is the word of God, word of God. And that's the scattering of God's seed or God's people all over the world. So they can come back to Pentecost here with all their different glossa and dialects. As regards to the half shekel, they all had to bring a half shekel. They couldn't bring sheep from over here in Rome, could they? Could they drive a sheep up to some boat and bring them across uh, this sea here and then bring them across the sea over here bring them around here they couldn't drive sheep all the way so they required a half shekel so when they got to jerusalem got to the temple they could buy a lamb there there was nothing wrong with selling lambs at the temple it wasn't this buying and selling of lambs because first of all you got all these travelers coming they couldn't bring sheep from where they're coming from besides that you got in northern israel you got fishermen that don't have any sheep you got carpenters that don't have any sheep you got tradesmen, people that work in the marketplace that don't have sheep. So you had to buy sheep at the temple. What was Jesus angry at? He was angry at the money changers. The Pharisees who were in charge of the temple told everybody, when you come here, you got to buy 
a sacrifice here, a sheep or a goat, whatever it is for that sacrifice, and you have to buy it with Hebrew money. And the standard money in Israel was Greek money. It was Greek coins. So when they exchanged the money for Hebrew money for you to buy sheep, they gave you a low price on it. It's like when you go from Michigan up into Canada. You have to get Canadian money. I've done that before. And as I was going over, you'd exchange so much money for Canadian money, you could exchange it back, and they might give you 70 cents on the dollar in Canada. Well, they were beating the socks off these people, and that's why Jesus comes in, turns the tables upside down, say, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. You're stealing from these people. Nothing wrong with buying the sheep or the lambs. They had to do that. They were cheating them out of their money. And they were exacting large prices for them. Let me read a little bit about this here out of the compendia. Josephus speaks of the Jews of Babylonia who used Nisibus and Nahardia as centers of collecting the gifts dedicated to the Temple of Jerusalem. Multitudes of Jews accompanied the convoys who brought their gifts to their destination. Convoys. You could go out on the street, on the highways. Go out on a highway as the people come to Jerusalem. And the compendia tells us that there could have been as many as 12 million Jews in and around Jerusalem at this Pentecost. Where did they sleep? They had tents as far as you could see around Jerusalem. And Everyone in Jerusalem had to leave their doors open till their houses were full of the pilgrims coming to Jerusalem. And they come from all over the world. And once the doors were shut, there ain't no place in that house. The compendium says if you could find a rock to sit out on at one of these festivals, you were doing real good. That's why Jesus would come down to Jerusalem to one of the festivals, and would offer his sacrifice. He didn't do away with the law just because he was there. And he performed his part of the law. But whenever the Jews would get after him, he was just a few steps up to northern Israel from Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Remember, Jerusalem is in, is in Benjamin. All he had to do the compendium says they were shoulder to shoulder, just bumping each other everywhere. And Jerusalem was where the temple was. All he had to do was get across the border into Ephraim, and the and the Pharisees wouldn't step foot in there. They considered northern Israel the most filthy place in the world. And they're not going to go into northern Israel. So when he was crowded and people all around him, he would just slip into the crowd and be gone. Once he, and he knew when they were coming after him because he was God. So he'd take off and be gone. But when he turned his face toward Jerusalem and said, it is time. He knew when it was time to die. He didn't try to get away from him anymore. He didn't try to get away from him. He knew the path to get away from him. And he always did. Let me just read a little more of this to you. The Jews accompanied the convoys. They would come in hordes. That's where this 
Simon the Cyrenian, when Jesus was going to Mount Golgotha to be crucified, he was among the crowd. You remember when Jesus, I'll bring this out next week. Remember he was with his parents and he was 12 years old and all of a sudden he disappeared and they didn't know where he was. He wasn't walking along with them. He was in the crowd, shuffling in the crowd. And they said, where's our son? Where'd he go? He was in one of those convoys. They came by the thousands and he's wandering around. He walks back to the Pharisees and he starts explaining the scriptures to the Pharisees. And they walk back during one of these convoys and find him and said, Son, you have, don't you know what you're doing? He said, I must needs to be about my father's business. Well, what a statement at 12 years old. He was in one of the convoys. You remember the, in Acts 8, the Ethiopian eunuch, he, was, he had been to Jerusalem to one of these festivals. And he asked Philip, Philip didn't tell him to be dipped in water. He said, what does hinder me to be baptized? And Philip said, you may, you're permitted to if you believe with all your heart. But that was a proselyte baptism that would make him a member of the kingdom of God. He didn't need to be circumcised because he was a eunuch. He had already been emasculated, so he didn't need circumcision. All he needed was those two offerings, two turtle doves, and he would be a member of Israel. Let me read a little more of this. The multitude of the Jews accompanied the convoys who brought their gifts to this destination. Twenty-four districts corresponded to the 24 priestly courses, and there were 24 high priest courses in Israel. You see that in the 24th chapter of 1 Chronicles. It goes on here. Let me get a couple more things before I quit. The matter of the half shekel brings up the question of the pilgrimage of the three feasts. There would be no need for this if it was Pentecostalism, would it? Three times in a year shall all your males appear before the Lord. It was a precept which could be fulfilled in any of the three feasts. The obligation was only felt to be binding insofar as it was practical for the Jews to do so. But God commanded it. If you really committed to the Lord, you would do it. Pilgrimages were made in a larger or smaller groups from every place where there was a Jewish community. Philo, who must have made the pilgrimage himself at least once, Philo was a historian. Since he recounts his experiences on the way to Jerusalem, says in one place, Thousands of men from thousands of cities streamed to the temple from every feast. It was easy for Jesus to hide in the middle of that crowd. Some from the east and the west, some from the north and the south. The half shekel brought to Jerusalem in groups and convoys, which as we see meant in practice pilgrimages in groups and convoys. The sending of the half shekel from the diaspora coincided with the pilgrimages to the feast, so the money collected in the lands adjoining Israel were there on the eve of Pentecost. We see from this that the halakha, that not only were these group pilgrimages, pilgrimages, but that in many cases at least the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem knew of the convoys due to reach the city. In keeping with the Lord's numbers of festival pilgrimages, 
from the diaspora, it appears that synagogues of various communities from the diaspora were established in Jerusalem in the century or so preceding the fall of the temple. So in the early century, long before Jesus was born, they were building synagogues there in Jerusalem so these people would have, be able to communicate each other when they come there. And if you believe in Pentecostalism, none of this means anything, does it? You can't believe in Pentecostalism. That is just a foolish fairy tale imagination. I don't like anything that lies about God. Pentecostalism and the charismatic doctrine that lies. And you people that are in it, you've talked to me on the streets. If you're in it, you should be ashamed of yourself because you don't care whether it's true or not. I'm just about out of time here. I don't even know. don't even have time to read anything else. The synagogues were established. A Greek inscription showed that the complex of buildings was used for these synagogues. I've got more on this. I'm going to come back next week and read you some more from this compendia. The compendia is one of the best set of books I've ever read concerning Jews in the first century. You don't read it. You study it. I'm out of time. Let's pray. Father, thank you for truth. Help us to understand when these people come with all these false doctrines in this last day and time. For us to reject that. Because, Lord, we, my heart goes out to the church here. Help strengthen them in these truths. God, we'll praise you for everything. We know everything is your will. All these people rejecting this truth is your will. Fight our battles, supply our need, lead us to your elect family in Christ's name. Amen. I'm going to come back to this next week. These, this compendium is a magnificent set of books. You can't teach this without reading it. How many um, books are in that compendia? Three or twelve? Well, the first two I would get would be the Jewish people in the first century. I've got 11, and oh, there's wow. probably more been put out. Okay. But the first two, the Jewish, right people, the Jewish people in the first century, volume one and two is ones I suggest okay. people start with. And then if you're going to get into the Halakha, get this other one. Get you got two in the Holocaust series. You got the literature of the sages, part one and part two. That'll tell you all about the Holocaust, the oral law. Okay. Yeah, the next time I go to McKay's books, I'm going to look for these. Well, I doubt if you'll find them over there. You might have to order them oh, okay. through Ralph over there at... Uh, Logos? Logos. Yeah, he can go to get them for you. And I need to find out if they got some more... They put some out usually every few years, and I haven't bought any in years. Remember that? Remember when I first moved here, you took me down to Music Row. 
and you took me into a bookstore down on Music Road and found the McClinic and Strong and gave it to me. Do you remember that? And they uh -uh. didn't have the whole set, uh -uh. but like six months later, they ended up with the whole set. You went down there, picked it up. I didn't. I didn't. I remember going down there. There's a Music Road down in the. Yeah. City. It was. A yeah, I remember where it is. It's down there. There were little restaurants all around it. Yeah. That yeah. Was, that was a great book. The Compendium is one of the best sets of books about the Jews in the first century. And if you're a if you're a Pentecostal, you're not going to like them at all because it's it's just information. Hey, what are you doing there, guy? Give me a hug. I love you. I'm glad you do. I need somebody to love me. Hey, little guy, what are you doing? <laughs>